As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a number of free ebooks. But now for today's show. I'm joined by the wonderful Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, a New Testament scholar who's president of the Christian Thinkers Society. Jeremiah is also the pastor of apologetics and cultural engagement at Prestonwood Baptist Church and dean of spiritual development at Prestonwood Christian Academy. And if that is not enough, Jeremiah has five children, including triplets. Jeremiah, thank you so much for coming back. Um, first question, what is the Christian Thinkers Society? <laughs> well, I need to back up. Um, when I moved to Oxford with my amazing wife and our 12-week-old baby in 2009, Ruth, I was whoa, not whoa, whoa. a Christian 12-week-old baby? Yes, 12-week-old baby. We did not Gosh. know how to call 911. You know, here in the United States, wow. if you have an emergency, you dial 911, uh-huh. and I realized... Um, that I didn't know how to call emergency services. So I called the Randolph Hotel in Oxford and I asked for concierge. And I said, hey, if I have an emergency, what number do I call? And he said, sir, you call 999-999. And I was like, oh, thank you. Wow. (laughs) So I started autumn in Oxford. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know anything. Hardly had to live People were gracious to us. And the reason we ended up in Oxford is Audrey and I were Christians, but I don't think we would have described ourselves as ourselves as Christian thinkers. Okay. We read this verse to love God with all our minds, Matthew twenty two thirty seven. It's the great commandment: love God with all your heart, soul, mind. And Jesus modifies the Shema, and He adds mind to the Shema, which is love God with your heart, soul, and strength from Deuteronomy six. And I realized I wanted to love God with my mind. And for Audrey and me, we prayed about it, and we left a very comfortable life and moved to England and just followed God. And I remember the first meeting I had at Faculty of Theology at Keeble College, I realized I was in a whole different world and I was going to learn and work as hard as I could. And so Christian Thinker Society, the vision for our ministry actually came to me in the Griffith Papyrology Lab at the Sackler Library, part of the Bodleian Library System. And I remember looking out the window you know, it was one of those Oxford days where it gets dark at like 2.30 in the afternoon, <laughs> yep. uh, you know, uh, and uh, I just thought, wow, Lord, you're not giving me these experiences to be a channel or excuse me, to be a reservoir of knowledge, but to be a channel of knowledge for you to inspire other believers to be Christian thinkers. Because everyone, not just the amazing, you know, 
MI6 Delta Force Christians like Ruth Jackson. <laughs> um, every Christian can be a Christian thinker, not just the amazing ones. And um, that message was made clear to me. And Audrey and I decided to start a ministry from absolutely nothing. No one gave us our ministry. People actually get in touch with me now. They're like, hey, who did your branding? You know, how did you come up with this logo or this ministry name? Listen, no one branded me. The Holy Spirit called me to be a Christian thinker. And so that's what we called our ministry, Christian Thinkers. And I was the first member who needed it. <laughs> so the ministry <laughs> has impacted my life. It's impacted my wife, Audrey's life. She has a master's. And uh, we we just wanted to get with other like-minded individuals. It was kind of a side hustle for several years. Little as much when God's in it. Amen. And, uh, and God just began to grow this ministry. And I, I began to speak in churches of all denominations with a message that, hey, don't come hear me because I'm the smart guy in the room. Let's all talk about how we can go deeper together, how we can learn from each other, and how we all can be Christian thinkers. And Ruth, that message took hold. And I've now been privileged to speak in universities, um, conferences, things that I've never imagined I could have spoken at. I've been invited to, and that hasn't changed since 2009. I show up and I talk about the best evidences for the Christian faith and why we can be Christian thinkers. Well, Jeremiah, let's back up even more than that, if that's okay. Would you take us back to kind of your childhood? What was your experience of God growing up? Did you grow up knowing God or was that sort of something that came later in life? I did grow up knowing God. I had the privilege to have a great heritage in my faith. My mom and dad loved Jesus with all their heart. Um, doesn't mean I necessarily owned my faith when I became Christian. It was certainly a passed on faith for a while until I got to university. Um, but I grew up in a wonderful Christian home with a dad that gave Billy Graham style evangelism crusades. I grew up seeing thousands of people come to Christ every month of my life. So I saw the power of the gospel in action. I also developed a real heart for youth, Ruth, because <laughs> my dad had a heart for teen suicide, teen drug addiction, and I just so appreciate his heart for young people. So that was formative for me as well. But it wasn't until I was a freshman in college that I got to the point of wanting to, what I call, own my own faith, where I saw faith could answer the difficult questions that I had. I had been holding those questions back for some reason from the Lord. And my mom, very God used my mom in my life to help me bring those really difficult questions to the Lord. God answered every one of them. And I started to have a journey of faith that was also included questioning. And that was a blessing. So my faith really became my own then. And then the, the other seminal moment of my life was meeting my wife, Audrey, who made sure that we prayed the first time that we went out on a date. Wow. And I'd never had a date that ended in prayer. So I immediately wanted to marry her. <laughs> and three and a half years, and, and she is serious about the Lord. She is one of those amazing people. She has no reason to be a Christian. She has no family that has encouraged her in her faith, as I have. I'm the recipient of incredible mentorship, but she is someone who walked with the Lord and really had no reason to. She got a job just to pay at a local pharmacy, uh, just to pay so she could go to youth camp. And uh, that was where she and I met. She was called to ministry uh, when I met her. And uh, it's just been a really neat blessing. I mean, everything we've done, and she's really helped me as an author. We've been talking in another show about one of my new books, just really make sure that, yes, it's great to have fresh scholarly insights, but she helps me so much to make sure those insights are practically applicable to yeah. life. That's such an important thing, isn't it? Because yeah. it's all very well to have the kind of the academies, but if no one's actually getting the gist of your right. argument, then 
Well, you mentioned there that you had lots of questions and your mum kind of helped you work through some of those. Were you, did you feel like as a teenager, you were able to articulate those questions in a Christian setting? So I know for a lot of people, that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, it's not. And honestly, I haven't, I had not read the whole Bible at that point in my <laughs> Christian life, like a lot of Christians who have never actually read the Bible and seen that there's actually 3,200 questions in the Bible. So there's a lot of questions um, asked in scripture. And um, it wasn't until I really read the whole Bible through for the first time that I began to see that the scriptures do not hide us from embarrassing narrative, the doubts, the concerns, the lack of faith. When Paul says, even if I'm faithless, God remi- remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. You have Elijah who asked God to kill him in the Old Testament. I mean, the, you have a, it doesn't hide us from some of these embarrassing details and even calls us. And so I found refuge in, in so many of these individuals from the scriptures that was formative to my faith. And I, again, a turning point for me. I remember being in Miami, Florida at New Year's with my my new wife, Audrey, and we had committed after we got married to read the Bible through together, Ruth. And you think, again, I just wanted for the encouragement of our audience, little is much when God's in it. And I remember I got to New Year's Eve and we had our final devotion and it was almost like more important than the getting a degree handed to me. I had finished reading the Bible in a calendar year. And again, um, that was a hugely formative thing for me. Little did I know later, just a few years later, we'd be in Oxford and I'd be pursuing it at a deeper level. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. So you, you went to Oxford, you did your PhD, you must have, you know, you learned under some of the cleverest people on the planet. How yes. did you get into apologetics? Was that the beginning of your foray into apologetics? I heard uh, Craig Evans speak and he was from a place I didn't realize even existed, Nova Scotia, Canada. I couldn't <laughs> have picked it out of the map, but I during my master's degree, I went to a intensive course on the Dead Sea Scrolls and I appreciate my first master's program, but I haven't, I haven't, I had never seen a professor, Ruth, actually put manuscript fragments on slides and then <laughs> show them to, and read them in front of us. And that blew my mind. And, you know, the world moves at the speed of relationships. In 2006, I just waited behind a crowd of about 300 people. I shook Professor Evans' hand. He was, he's the finest Jesus scholar in the English-speaking world at this time, 700 publications under his name. And I got off my ASK. I got off my ask. And, I, you know, so many people listening to us today need to learn how to ask for help. Mm-hmm. You know, and I asked him. This is something I see with Gen Z today. It's like you got to believe more in yourself and what God's called you to do. Because I went up to Craig Evans. I was one of 300 and said, hey, I want to get your email. Can we stay in touch? And I had to get out of my comfort zone to do that, Ruth. And sure enough, we stayed in touch when he returned the next year, 2007. I took him out for a big old steak and I said, I want you to be my doctor father. And he's like, okay, he did. He said, I'll do it because I asked. And that changed the trajectory of my life. And he then linked me up with Paul Foster, who graduated from Oxford, I think actually Queens College. He's probably the finest biblical scholar in the UK right now. He's at University of Edinburgh, Paul Foster. Um, those two guys began advising me. They found a program where I could be residential in Oxford, but where they could be my doctoral supervisors through Middlesex University and very proud of my PhD for Middlesex. And it was a great program. And they they uh, they they were not easy on me either, Ruth. So <laughs> it was quite an experience. So why are you so passionate about the intellectual credibility of your faith? Why is that such an important part of of your faith? 
the most dangerous place a human can being can get to is when you stop seeking truth. And I just have to tell you, I'm addicted to truth. <laughs> Why do I care about apologetics? I'm addicted to truth. Why do I care about truth? Because all roads of truth lead back to Jesus Christ, who is truth embodied. So just having the addiction to truth that I do caused me to want to go deeper in my faith. And the deeper I went, the more engaged I was in my faith, the more I realized, wow, this is transformational. It's transformational in my relationship with my wife. It's transformational as a father. It's transformational in my ethics, my worldview. We all have worldview. It's constantly changing. Our worldview is constantly being influenced. And my worldview radically changed in my 20s when I got deeper in my faith. And I'm, I'm so thankful that I became a dad later in my late 20s and early 30s because my worldview was so much more secure. It, I was in Christ, who God is. And I would have been a bad dad, you know, in the, my early 20s because I was still figuring out my own faith at the time with my young wife. And uh, wow, what a journey it was. Well, we're going to talk more about you being a dad because I definitely want to ask you what it's like to be a dad to triplets and yeah. two other children as well. But but just while <laughs> we're sort of still on the apologetics thing, and this might be really hard to articulate, but but why do you, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, why do you personally believe in God? Is it kind of a plethora of different cumulative arguments or is there one thing in particular or has it kind of changed over the time as you've grown and developed in your faith? Jesus narrates God to us, and I fell in love with Jesus, and so Jesus is why I believe in God. If I want to know anything about God, I look to Jesus Christ. There's many things I don't know about God, but what I do know about God I see revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. I am a Christian because of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. God acted decisively in Jesus Christ. He dealt with my sin on the cross 2,000 years ago. And in this decisive act, he paid for my sin in full. Jesus taking my sin upon him and then rose from the grave three days later, not only to forgive me my sins, but to give me abundant life in him and to declare me justified just as if I had never sinned. And that message was so compelling to me. It transformed my life. And But make no mistake, I'm a Christian because of the fact of Jesus' resurrection and the facts of the gospel, which I deeply need. And uh, and with that, that allows me to believe in God, because for me, any question I have about God, I look to Jesus to answer. Now, again, this might be quite a tricky thing to sort of squash into a couple of minutes. But if you had someone come alongside you, I mean, you you engage with atheists, agnostics quite a lot. If you had someone sort of chatting to you and said, you know, I can't believe in God for X, Y, Z. Is there anything that you would say that you think might perhaps help them along their journey to believe that actually God does exist. Absolutely. You can't explain love in the world if God doesn't exist. You can't explain acts of random acts of human kindness if God doesn't exist. There's what I call the problem of love. Why is there anything good in the world? Why do we expect there to be good? Why do we expect right from wrong? All of these underpinnings come back to the cut and thrust that there is a creator, a designer, who not only created and designed us, but is the lawgiver. He is he is morality himself. And when I look at that, when I look at the quote-unquote problem of the good, I see that that, to me, points back to God. And there's so many other fun ways. I mean, that's the neat thing about truth. <laughs> you know, truth is reality. Truth, um, a verisimilitude, it exhibits reality. Truth is what is really there. It corresponds with reality. And when we look at the truth around us, you know, I can't help but see God everywhere. And that's where, again, then I go from that more macro level truth to the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. And it's so compelling. 
I guess that's that's one conversation where someone has perhaps thought about these things and rejected it for whatever reason. But I guess where I find myself a lot, and I'm sure you do increasingly now, is in this kind of apathetic space where people aren't looking at the claims and rejecting them. They're just not even interested in it at all. You know, the question of God just hasn't even come up on their radar. They're, I guess, for want of a better word, just completely apathetic. It's, well, why does it matter? I don't care if there's a God. How would you respond to people in that category who are kind of apathetic to any sort of religious perspective? About five years have gone into this answer. You may get what you want, but you may not want what you get if Christianity is marginalized or collapses because we just, we're so apathetic because we are the recipients of what Winston Churchill called Christian civilization in the West. You cannot explain the rise of the West without the influence of Christianity. So many of the amenities, and this is where it's on me, Ruth, and it's on our parents who are watching to pass on a legacy of faith to our children. So many amenities and freedoms that we enjoy in society come straight out of the Judeo-Christian worldview. They're so influential over those things that we just can't even comprehend a world without human rights, human dignity. And yet, here's the scary part. If we remain apathetic, you have the absolute truth deniers. They come in and they deny absolute truth, and then they insert a new truth with, in place of the, quote, absolute truth, and that new truth is their truth, and that truth usually dehumanizes humanity. We see this in more than one half of the world's population that it's turned its back on God in the last 70 years. We see these countries that are absolute truth-denying countries. I wouldn't want to raise my family in those countries because... Humanity is dehumanized, relativism reigns, it's law of the jungle, it's strong of it's survival of the strong and the fittest, the most aggressive, and then finally it's no hope, no purpose, no meaning. That's that's that trajectory. And so I we need to do a better job communi- communicating what rises, what falls with the Christian faith. And when we actually stop, if I can have that conversation yeah. with anyone at a shop, I think I would leave them at least thinking about two or three things as we left. So I guess like what's the logical outworking of like pushing yeah, your worldview to it's all Christian faith. It, yeah. it, it's a whole different world. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Well, Jeremiah, you're a um, pastor of apologetics and cultural engagement. I kind of love that sort of double header, you know, what you do at Prestonwood. What are some of the big issues that you are seeing in culture, I guess, particularly in your context in America? And this is a huge question. How can the gospel speak into some of those big issues, do you think? This is such a great question, Ruth. Thank you for asking it. The most important question we face right now is who's influencing our worldview? Worldviews uh-huh. are like belly buttons. We all have them. We just don't talk about them very uh-huh. much. Some of us don't realize we all have a worldview right now. We're listening to it. And what I'm seeing an opportunity is really discussing worldview. We seem to be on trend, as it were, because this worldview is in the culture today. Everybody wants to figure out their worldview. And so we know scales of truth tip in our favor as believers. And so what I'm seeing as a pastor of cultural engagement, I also create worldview curriculum, everything we can do to pass on a robust Christian worldview, the center of peace, which is the resurrection of Jesus, but that unlocks Christian ethics. The resurrection of Jesus unlocks all the other outworkings of Christian worldview, but allows us to pass on a robust faith to our children and our young people. 
But make no mistake, part of that Christian worldview is also the ability to point out the discrepancies and where other worldviews fail. And so that's also where we have an opportunity. You know, Christianity's closest competitor right now in the West is secular humanism. You know, that is a huge competitor with us right now. You talk about apathy and secular humanism just go hand in hand together. It's really not even postmodernism anymore. It's secular humanism. And so we have to be able to point out the flaws, the deep fundamental flaws and other worldviews as well. So that's what I focus on every single day right now. Those two categories, building worldview from a Christian standpoint, and then the flaws of other worldviews. And so I think that's a great way. Uh, We have hundreds of people who are studying with us right now, engaging in our worldview task force and deepening their own Christian worldview. It's really exciting. And you know, what, what we celebrate, we replicate. And at our church, we celebrate Christian worldview, so we replicate Christian thinkers. And that's what we're going to keep doing. Well, we've talked a little bit about apathy and people who just don't even have these questions, aren't even thinking about it. But there obviously are questions and there are objections. I mean, what are some of the big questions or objections that you see emerging? And do you think they've kind of changed over the years? And I guess significantly, how do we begin to approach some of those questions and objections and and show that actually you know, we we have answers to some of those big questions. The number one question right now that we're asked from Christians of all ages relates to mental health, mental pain. And so that's something, Ruth, I know that you're passionate as well as ministering to individuals who are struggling with mental pain. C.S. Lewis struggled with mental pain. A lot of smart people struggle with mental pain. Everybody struggles with mental pain. And so that is my number one question. It is an apologetics question for me, how we respond to those that are suffering and struggling with mental illness, mental pain, anxiety, despair, depression. So that's huge. And yes, that is a new question that has yeah. appeared since the invention of the selfie in 2012. The world changed when we right. got these front-facing cameras and we all started doing selfies. There was a radical increase in depression and anxiety among young girls that we did not see in any other demographic as soon as the selfie was invented. And so uh, as a result, we have this perform- we have performance-driven friendships. Young girls don't know how, how to be friends anymore because it's all performance-driven. It's, it's the dopamine hit of likes, and that person has more streaks than me or more likes than me or more followers than me, and I just don't measure up. And it it actually is connected we, as we are. It splintered us in relationships. We don't know how to be good friends anymore. We don't know how to find good friends. And so I get a lot of questions around the social media, which is a silent killer of our young people, tons yeah. of questions around mental health. Those questions together, and then obviously with the problem of people suffering and pain, I would lump all those together as a great opportunity because we do have the answer and we do know how to help people love God and live in the shalom peace of so that's that's a forefront right now that we need to continue to champion as Christian thinkers. Yeah. And I guess in this kind of rising secularism, I, I'm speaking from the UK and, you know, very much in a sort of secular society. How do we live distinctively as Christians within a secular society, do you think? This is really um, a great question as well. I've been giving it a lot of thought, Ruth. If you'll just learn how to be friendly to people, you're going to be a great Christian. We live, coming out of COVID, people are so unkind. They're so rude. The level is so low. If you just won't be a jerk to people, people are going to know something different about you. So that's step number one is learn to be friendly. Learn to reach out to people. Learn to love on people. Go out of your way to experience friendship. One out of seven men right now have no friends. None. And so if we can build community 
through our local churches, through ministries, through programs like this one, if we can build community there, that's a great opportunity because people are more and more isolated. In isolation, there's a reason we call it solitary confinement. Isolation is the worst punishment. And so we need to help people believe in community together. And of course, that's where the church is the greatest force for good on earth right now. And I guess linked into all of this, there, there seems to be a sort of sense of hopelessness in our world at the moment. How should we live as people of hope? And I guess we spoke in the last episode about the kind of the hope that the resurrection gives us. How do we speak? How do we live as kind of people of resurrection hope in this hopeless world? Well, we have this message of God's shalom, his peace. And we have 576 passages in the scripture that talk about living in the peace of God. So the Bible actually has more to say about living in his peace than it does about faith, about hope, about love. This whole notion of living, not only A, having peace with God, as we described in our previous episode, but then having, once we do have peace with God, Romans 5.1, we then experience the peace of God, which is in Colossians, it's in Philippians 4. Ruth, the Apostle Paul goes from a panic attack in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. He's looking for his friend Titus and Troas. He can't find him. Troas becomes a trigger for him. What, it, what does God do, though? He, he, doesn't, he forgets this at first, but God introduces him to a new friend in Troas by the name of Luke. All the weep start from Troas. Paul never wanted to go back to Troas, and yet God brings him back to his place of trigger because he was able to triumph over his trigger. He actually raises someone from the dead in Troas on the third missionary journey. Seven years later, Paul goes from a panic attack in Troas to writing the greatest anti-anxiety passage in all the Bible, Philippians 4. So how did he do that? He developed a peace plan, and peace is a discipline for the believer. How do we live in hope and in the peace of God with a world that's apathetic around us? We show them that we can live in the peace of God amidst all the adversity around us, and that peace is a discipline. We work at it. We learn the peace of God through thinking about who we are in Christ and all we have in Christ. I don't know about you, but I think often apologetics is sort of seen as a discipline that just involves the head. It's like just done by the geeks. But I know that you, like me, are really passionate about engaging hearts as well. It's it's not just a kind of academic discipline, apologetics. So how do we combine the two? Because obviously the head is important. You're a scholar, you're an academic, you're a, you know, you have a very good PhD. But how do we reconcile both the head and the heart, do you think? We have to. We have to reconcile it because I was reached, my head was reached, my heart was reached through my head. So <laughs> we have to do we have to have substantive teaching, but we have to have heartfelt pastoral application with our teaching. And Ruth, you exemplify this so well in your ministry. So just go to any Ruth Jackson content. <laughs> you're you do this. She's phenomenal at this. But what I would encourage people to do is is make sure you don't lose track of your why. I'm not doing this to be the smartest guy in the room. I'm not. I'm doing this because I've seen the transformational impact of the gospel in my family, my children, my marital relationships, my community. I've seen the difference the gospel makes in third world countries. I've seen the difference the gospel makes in society and, and some of the wealthiest people as well. So the gospel works. We just need to share it. And eight out of 10 people will come to church if we just invite them. Eight out of 10 people won't say no to an invitation to a faith dialogue. And what's really cool about it, the more I know about my faith, the more I can have healthy faith conversations. And remember, loving is listening, right? And so when I love someone, I listen to them. I'm, I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm trying to listen to them and really ask questions and ascertain where they're at because 
people respond so much more better to a uh, question rather than an assertion. So I draw people into a conversation because I care about them. I love them and I want to listen. That's what we can do. That's It's worked for me. It's not a silver bullet, but it works every time. You mentioned there that you've seen Faith transform your family. I'd love to talk a little bit about your family because you are okay. the dad of triplets and two other children. You've got an amazing wife sort of holding it all together in the background. Yes. How do you juggle family and ministry? And, you know, it, it's it's quite a family as well, isn't it? How, how do you navigate all of that? Well, the most important decision I made after receiving Jesus Christ as my Savior was marrying my wife, Audrey. I don't think people realize how significant the the decision is, who they marry, how that decision is going to impact the rest of their lives. I would have quit so many times at Oxford, Ruth, but I came home, spirit-filled wife who prays. She's just always in a spirit of prayer. She's always praying, literally, whatever she's doing, I feel like she's always praying. And she just said, no, get out. You're going to go finish this. You're not quitting. I'm not letting you quit. Um, I remember calling her. I was backstage at a men's conference had about 11,000 men at it. And uh, this NFL quarterback was throwing footballs into the audience, Ben Roethlisberger. And I had to come up after that. He took all my time. He was literally like, how do I follow up an yeah. NFL super winning quarterback with my message? She just said, go out there and get it. You know, God's got this. And so we all need someone that will be a Barnabas in our life. They're going to celebrate the work of God in our life. And man, my wife, it all starts right there. And so we have to make sure we're listening to voices that are encouraging us in the Lord. And I just can't emphasize how crucial that's been in my life. Audrey has been a prophet to me and an encourager and a Barnabas from the very beginning. When I called her and said, hey, I think we're going to go to Oxford. God's calling us to do that. She was like, let's go. That'll be fine. We'll do that. You know, let's, let's follow the Lord. And then we lived in Canada, Ruth. I mean, our, our story is circuitous. You know, we were professors in Canada. So, um, you know, just kept going. And uh, but that has been the centerpiece. It hasn't changed from that first day, us trying to make the Lord the Lord of our marriage. And then that's had just huge implications on me believing in myself, believing in God's call in my life, and then also seeing it come to fruition. So Audrey... Audrey gets the credit. The Lord used her in my life in a significant way. And and now we do, you know, we couldn't get pregnant for five years. We struggled with infertility. And so, you know, I joke people prayed too hard because <laughs> now we have kids, you know, triplets, uh, triplet boys who are six. And I mean, it's just amazing. We have so much fun. You know, I, I am thankful to be out of the diaper stage. Do you guys mm-hmm. call them diapers? In the UK, I can't nappies. remember. Nappies. I mean, we nappies. know what diapers are. Well, I was buying 700 nappies a month for these boys. Wow. So I'm very thankful to be out of the nappy stage now. Yeah. That's been a crucial, crucial difference. <laughs> and do you feel like your ministry has changed since having your children? Do you feel like they've shaped the way you talk about things, the way you think about things, the way you see God? Well, I, I just have to laugh, Ruth, and I've been, I feel so transparent on this conversation. Last night, I am exhausted. I've been I've been working busier, so busy. I've been working eight days a week, and my daughter literally, I'm ready to like go to bed, and she's like, "Dad, we need to talk about Job." Um, Dad, Job, why did God let Satan impact Job's life? I need you to talk to me about this right now. Wow. Uh, well. I have to be the apologist dad right now. But, you know, she has these questions and my kids are not afraid. They have no hesitancy to ask questions. So it definitely has shaped my life. Um, Lily will, I will not even ask her. She will bring up pointers to me. Now, my Lily is just 13 years old, Ruth. So I was just to an event in Kansas City and 
she of her own accord wrote down some, you know, things I needed to improve with my message and just oh. handed me the paper and said, dad, you need to work on these few things for the ne next message. A little more heart, dad, a little more application here. Wow. So have they impacted my ministry? Yes. They have no problem telling me how I can improve and in what's boring as well. So we all need those people that can speak to our what, life. I tell you what, Lily needs to watch out. That's how I started preaching uh, as I think I was, <laughs> I think I was about 17 or 18 and my dad was a vicar. And I basically slated his sermon over Sunday lunch afterwards. And he went, he went, fine, you do it better next week then. And I went, That's right. fine, I, I will, that. with all the arrogance of youth. <laughs> and that was that was my first ever sermon. And he still kept his microphone on and he kind of heckled me from the back. So Lily, watch oh, out. <laughs> I will tell her that. She'll love that. I guess sort of related to that question, how do we raise kids who are confident in their own faith but are comfortable asking questions and kind of wrestling with doubts. How do we create that space where questions are okay, but actually, you know, here is the truth and, and we're praying for the truth, but but we're creating a space where it's totally okay to have questions and it's totally okay to have doubts. Yes. And by the way, doubts sharpen us. We should never shame our children for doubting. Doubts sharpen us. Um, we don't shame people for having doubts, and we certainly shouldn't shame our children for having doubts. So many parents stop short of even having the conversation because they don't know what to say, and they don't realize the power in saying, hey, I don't know that, but mm. let's look into it together. Mm. Let's let's go find this out together. Let's find the answer. I don't know it right now, but we can find out. And I grew up in a faith like that where it was always up for discussion. Questions could be asked. Hard questions could be answered, and then we could go deeper. And And, you know, God is the is a reality in our home. We talk about God like we talk about anyone else in our home. And so, you know, we have a very fluent conversation that's just constantly happening around the table and just in our lives around the Lord. And so, um, you know, I think that so many people that have grown up in families where it was like, hey, don't ask, just believe. And that's not the kind of faith we see reflected. We believe in community. We believe together. And so we have to continue to foster those kind of places in our home and with our family. I want my kids to bring me their toughest questions. I don't want them to talk to anybody else about those tough issues. I want them to come talk to me about those things before anyone else. And then if I don't know, I'm going to help them find the answer. Mm. We're going to really talk about it, whatever it is. And our kids also know, A, I will never shame them. Nothing can make me love them less. No matter, Nothing they do could devalue them in my eyes. So I don't care, you know, and I make sure they know we're going to make mistakes. Mistakes happen. We all make mistakes. So the, the bar here is not perfection, but I just want to know. Don't ever try to deceive me. Let me know. Let me come alongside you yeah. and help you. And so those are reassuring things for a child to hear. And I think, you know, they need to be reminded of it daily, as you probably know, Ruth. Yeah. Well, you're a dad of five. I feel like I should be asking Audrey this as well. But do you have any advice for parents? Um. Yes. I'm trying to think what's appropriate to say on this show. <laughs> yes. There are a number of coping mechanisms available to us for parents. Um, but yeah, you know, my advice is to, you know, not take yourself too seriously, to have as much joy as you do, um, all the other strident things in life. Don't be afraid to laugh at yourself. Um, you know, my family laughs at me a lot. I, I think they really get tickled laughing at me when dad does just something silly and you know, for me, I, I'm not a parenting expert, but I do love my kids like crazy and my, my wife. And, you know, I just continue to ask the Lord every day to give me wisdom because it truly is the most challenging thing in my life is being <laughs> a dad. And, 
you know, we need the encouragement of other parents that have walked before us. Um, they're going to see it in our marriage. So those of you that are married that are watching or listening to this, we need to exemplify a marriage. Um, that's so crucial and informative to our children. So that, that can't, you know, our kids cannot see us not unified. And so that's a huge, a crucial conversation as well. Jeremiah, I feel like I want to speak to you for like hours and hours more. Like I say, I feel like maybe we need you to have like a regular slot on this show. But do it, I, real. Come on. <laughs> let's do it. Um, sadly, we're at the end of this podcast. So I just want one last question while we come to the end. Is there anything that you would kind of go back and tell younger Jeremiah Johnston, just as he's like starting out, maybe, maybe as he's heading to Oxford, with kind of everything, the wealth of knowledge that you've picked up over the years, is there anything that you would go back and tell your younger self? Wow, that's a great question. I would encourage the young Jeremiah that God is faithful and he is going to put you in places and make connections that right now you think mean very little that are going to be very impactful for the kingdom someday. So just know that God is faithful and know that little is much when God's in it. Well, that feels like a brilliant bit of advice for anyone who's listening. But Jeremiah, thank you so much. I've so appreciated this conversation. Ruth, thank you. And thank you for your leadership. I love following you. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guest through the links with today's show. Please do let us know what you think of the program by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch on social media. And don't forget to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.